You're listening to CKUW 95.9 FM, Winnipeg. listening to Bikini Drive-In on CKUW 95.9 FM Winnipeg. Bikini Drive-In's mission is to analyze horror and science fiction films through an intersectional feminist lens while combining elements of screen and media studies, arts criticism, and women and gender studies. Since we'll be discussing portrayals of horror and violence, content warning, listener discretion is advised, etc. Also, spoilers ahead. This week I'm joined again by Stephen King expert Talia Steele. Thanks so much for being here again. Thank you so much for having me again. Uh, Talia Steele is a creative director, freelance graphic designer, and illustrator living in Winnipeg. Her current work consists of analyzing the comfort of commonplace objects, textures, and fabrics using mixed mediums. You can view her work on her Instagram page at Saint underscore Talica. Today we're continuing Anthology Month and discussing George A. Romero and Stephen King's 1982 film, Creepshow. Coming soon. Jolting tales of horror. Creep show. From the author of Carrie, The Shining, and Cujo. And the creator of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. You'll scream at ghastly ghouls. Cringe at weird kids. And shiver at the doings of evil doctors. This is going to be extremely painful, Mr. Verrill. Creepshow will grab you, grow on you, and give you the creeps. Oh, this is going to be an entirely new experience. Creep Show, the most fun you'll ever have being scared. Creep Show is an anthology horror written by Stephen King with his first screenplay and directed by George A. Romero that features five short stories bookended by a narrative about a boy, a young boy punished by his abusive father for reading horror comics. The first segment, Father's Day, tells the story of a murdered man who returns from the grave demanding his Father's Day cake and death ensues. The second short, The Lonesome Death of Geordie Barrel, is about a not-too-bright farmer discovering a meteor that turns everything into plant life. Something to Tide You Over, based on Stephen King's short story Weeds, tells the story of a scheming, vengeful husband that buries his wife and lover in sand to await death at high tide. Next, The Crate is about a strange creature locked in a crate in the basement of a university. And finally, They're Creeping Up on You is about a mean old millionaire with an intense German insect phobia becoming the prey of an army of cockroaches. The framing story ends with the young boy from the beginning of the film taking revenge on his horrible father with a voodoo doll. Talia, what is your, or what's your history? And was this your first time seeing Creepshow? Uh, it was my first time seeing it. Um, I had recently watched it after you recommended it to me in November. 
Um, I've like always seen it on, you know, lists like of, you know, horror movies to watch, um, but I just like never got around to it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was totally not what I was expecting at all. And I was surprised to find out that it was actually a Stephen King. Um, well, he wrote the screenplay. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that initially. Uh, you know, being a Stephen King expert. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wasn't like that surprised after watching it because of the Father's Day segment. Um, gave me some serious Pet Cemetery vibes. Yeah, totally. Uh, Armadillia. Um, my favorite segments were The Crate and Something's Tied You Over. Um, while they're creeping up on you, honestly, gross me out like a little too much. It, like, I had a really hard time watching that one. Mm -hmm. So, um, Overall, I really, really liked it. It was super fun, and I think it's something that I probably will rewatch around like Halloween time. Um, what about you? Um, yeah, so yeah, it's not a very interesting story, but I watched it a few years ago and I liked it. Um, I just think it's like <laughs> so fun and colorful, and I think it would just be really fun to watch a party or in a theater with a bunch of people. But that could be because I've been locked in my house for <laughs> too long. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, I've been covering anthology films for this month. So anthology film is a subgenre of film consisting of several different short films, often tied together by only a single theme, premise, or a brief interlocking event. The past few weeks, uh, we've covered uh, Masaki Kobayashi's 1964 Japanese folk anthology, Kwaidan, and the very bro-y VHS from, 19, no, from 2012. Sorry. And Creepshow is an interesting anthology because of the partnership between Romero, King, and Tom Sabini, the, the special effects artist. Um, I think the comic book aesthetic and framing really works with the anthology film format. And yeah, it's just like very fun and very fun oh, to watch. Um, yeah, so I have a quote here from Stacey Ponder from FinalGirl.Rocks. Final Creepshow is a love letter from writer Stephen King and director George A. Romero to, to both EC comics and horror films of the past. Note, the housekeeper in Father's Day is named Mrs. Danvers. Any of these stories would easily would easily have fit in any issue of Tales from the Crypt or The Haunt of Fear. Romero provides the visuals that make the film feel more like a comic book than most films actually based on comic books. He incorporates graphics, bright colors, and comic book imagery seamlessly into each story. Natalia, uh, how do you feel about anthology films? Um, I really do like them um, overall. I have seen... In quite a few anthology movies and TV shows um, and I'm kind of just coming to realize that they're mostly in the horror genre. Mm -hmm. The ones that I've seen anyway is like Trick or Treat, uh, All Hallows Eve, Body Bags. Um, I watched a lot of Tales from the Crypt Keeper as a kid um, which I wasn't really aware that it was a, well I don't know if it's based on an EC comic mm -hmm. um, which is cool. Um, anyways they're super campy and fun like I feel like it's never really that serious. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that maybe one of the reasons why I enjoy them is that in anthology and horror, they kind of seem to go hand in hand, and there's always seems to be like this playful, like mischievous element to it. And I think that sometimes a horror genre, it's sometimes better in the shorter form, anyway. Mm -hmm. So like you know, I think like classic campfire stories or like telling spooky stories. Uh, as sleepover, like you go around the group and everyone has a turn, and you always like try to tell the scariest story, and like no one's gonna tell like an hour long story mm -hmm. with like character character development or anything. So it's just supposed to freak you out. Um, 
And that's just kind of what I love about short horror stories and anthologies is that it doesn't really give you much room for speculation or like guessing a twist or anything before it happens. It just, it's short, it's sweet to the point it like does what it's meant to do, like to creep you out. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't know why I read this, um, but I saw, I just saw this written somewhere. I thought it was interesting mm -hmm. when I was like researching this, but it said mm -hmm. that anthology horror is like for the real OG horror fans. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that was good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? Like, what do you think about them? Um, yeah. So yeah, I grew up reading short horror stories like Arl Stein and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, and watching shows like Are You Afraid of the Dark and Weird Stories. But I didn't have much experience with anthology films before this month, so it's been really cool to like research them and I'm trying to watch like a few different genres, yeah. um, or subgenres, I should say. And um, after being a university student for a very long time, I've started reading for fun again and found myself <laughs> reading short stories and, and novellas to sort of get back into it. Um, but yeah, for anthology films, Creepshow and Twilight Zone and the Twilight Zone movie are my favorites. Um, and in researching anthologies for this month, it's been really cool to see how creative filmmakers are able to be with the shorter format. It seems like filmmakers are able to, make, to take more risks and tell weirder stories. Or like you said, like they don't have to be like tied to like a two hour long narrative and like you don't necessarily expect too much setting or character development. So film filmmakers are able to tell like simple, creepy stories. Yeah. Yeah. I read a couple of other Stephen King short stories and novellas. Um, like, I don't know. I just feel like he's really good at writing like overall. Mm -hmm. um, two of my favorite collections are Four Past Midnight and Everything's Eventual, which I don't really know if those ones are like the more popular ones. Like mm -hmm. I think Four Past Midnight is, but Everything's Eventual, like I had never heard of it before. Mm -hmm. But um, in Four Past Midnight, um, a really great story is the is Secret Window. It's called Secret Window, Secret Garden, which is there was a movie that Johnny Depp did. Yeah, I didn't realize before. that was a Stephen King short story. Yeah, That's yeah, wild. not the greatest movie ever, yeah. but um, in that one, the writer claims he has proof he published the story first. Oh, sorry, mm -hmm. a stranger turns up at the doorstep of this famous writer, Steve King loves writing about writers, Yeah, <laughs> and accuses him of his story, and then the writer claims that he has proof that he published the story first. Um, it's really a great story, it's like very twisty, like I like the actual short story mm -hmm. out of the movie, and then um, in Everything's Eventual, the story of Room 1408, which I think it's it's made into a movie with, like, John Cusack. Yeah. Um, yeah, great, great movie. And then uh, that lives in that collection. And then there's one called Lunch at the Gotham Cafe, and it's really, really fun, um, totally wacky, um, very bloody, creepy, and, like, honestly thinking about it, like, still kind of gives me the creeps. Mm -hmm. It's really creepy. Demonic Maitre D. Haunted Hotels, oh like, gosh. Stephen King just, like, loves his tropes. Um, but, yeah, I recommend checking those ones out. Cool. Um, have you read any um, of Stephen King's short stories? Um, yeah, I think I've only read the short story collection Different Seasons, which I will lend to you. Um, yeah. It includes uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, Apt Pupil, The Body, and The Breathing Method. Um, we've discussed Stephen King's books in on the show a few times and like I just find his writing to be quite sentimental however like I think this style his style of writing works really well with the short story format because he doesn't have to describe a certain setting for like 10 pages or whatever or like rely too much on character development yeah totally. yeah um do you read comics um I've read a few comics back when I was a kid 
the Sabrina the Teenage Witch comics were like my ultimate favorite. Love those. Um, I also used to really love Calvin and Hobbes. I kind of still do. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just really love comic books and graphic novels because they create like this totally different world of storytelling with illustrations and text that like cuts out all the filler that you would get when reading a book or watching a movie. And like I'm the kind of person that gets like really easily distracted when I'm like interrupted reading mm-hmm. or watching a movie and then I'll have to like go back and reread like the same thing over and over again or rewatch it just to make sure that I know what's going on. But with comic books, like you can just, you know, quickly glance at the last couple of panels and yeah, you're like right back in. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a whole different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really loved the shots in Creepshow, like the illustrated panels for mm-hmm. the scenes. Um, the one that I loved the most was maybe like the bloody panel in the Father's Day segment, like, mm-hmm. with the dead father, like, after he was hit with the uh, ashtray, yeah. and this bloody, like, outline, mm-hmm. was, I just love that, that mm-hmm. was so cool, and then the roach frame, and they're creeping up on you, which I'm not, like, sure if this is, like, a normal thing for EC Comics, um, but either way, I thought it was, like, a really nice touch for the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about you? Do you like count- Do you like comics? Um, I'm a big fan of um, the graphic novels by Daniel Close, who did Ghost World, Walter Scott, who has the Wendy series, and Charles Burns, who um, did Black Hole, and the x Out series. Um, I actually took a topics and comics class at the University of Winnipeg a few years ago, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, other than reading a few Buffy comics, I'm not super familiar with um, horror comics. Um, but I did like that Creepshow presented itself as a comic book, and use the comic book aesthetic of like very saturated colors using mostly like still camera or extremely campy angles like nearly every shot is framed like a comic book panel which i thought was really really cool i told you before i didn't want you to read this crap i never saw such rotten crap in my life where do you get this shit who sells it to you I'm talking to you, young man. You want to answer me when I'm talking to you. You remember who puts the friggin' bread on the table around here, don't you? Stan, don't be too hard on him. All the kids are eating. My boy isn't all the kids. Want to know where this is going, Billy? In the garbage. Right into the friggin' garbage. Now, you got any smart mouth about that? No, it's any worse than the books you keep in your dresser. Those ones under your underwear. Those sex books. Dan, you didn't have to hit him. Not only do I find out he's reading this crap, he's a goddamn little snoop as well. No, it wasn't like that! Dad put me to get you coffee from Sunday! The windows are open downstairs. I better get down and close them. The rain will get in. No, I'll do it. I got some garbage I want to throw away. Daddy, please don't throw it away. I'm sorry. The next time, young man, I find you with a worthless piece of shit like this again, you want to sit down for a week, buddy boy. Remember that. Tuck in. hard on him you see that crap all that horror crap things coming out of crates and eating people dead people coming back to life people turning into weeds for christ's sake well yes i did but i well you want him reading that stuff well no but all right then i took care of it that's why god made fathers babe that's why god made fathers 
yeah, so I just want to start by talking about a couple of themes that are in the film. Um, first of all, fathers. So yeah, there's this theme of horrible fathers in several of the short films in The Framing Story, Father's Day, and Jordy Barrel is also haunted by his father. Why do you think that the film focuses on fathers so much? You know, fathers and bad parents in general are like the subjects of a lot of Stephen King novels. So mm -hmm. there's like the parents in Pet Cemetery that just like can't keep an eye on their like little son like running into traffic yeah. or Jack Torrance from The Shining, which like I feel like, you know, we all know what he was like. Mm -hmm. uh, the abusive mother in Carrie, the abusive father in It, and even Annie Wilkes in Misery as like a twisted motherly figure to uh, writer Paul Sheldon. Mm -hmm. And the parents like in Stephen King novels like cannot be trusted. <laughs> So, um, there's a quote from The Fix, King finds himself struggling with parenthood, frustrated and wrestling with his own violent impulses. In Lisa Rogak's King biography, Haunted Heart, he admitted to wanting to grab and hit his children while he was drinking, a feeling that manifested itself in his novel The Shining, a novel that he wrote blazingly fast. The alcoholic Jock Torrance did all the things that the author of King never did, and alter ego every bit as violent and unhinged as any monster he let loose on his characters. So that kind of brings me to, into my next note, which is like the idea of a crisis of masculinity and how masculinity is portrayed in this film. Um, the theory of a crisis of masculinity is seen as a response to the rise of feminism and the women's movement, gay liberation movement, and the declining emotional and mental health for men, and the rise of the mass media and popular culture. Um, I have a quote here from theconversation.com. More recently, we've begun to talk about a masculinity crisis, commonly used to describe how the changing work patterns and new family demands put pressure on men who feel distress and insecurity about their new gender role. Many straight men find it hard to reconcile the, the traditional view of gender with the new approach based on partnership and equality of men and women at home and at work. The sense of failing to perform the male ideal promoted by advertisement, Hollywood films, and porn movies can provoke, defense, can provoke defensiveness uh, defensive reactions in men, machismo, resentment towards women, and all too often aggressive or abusive hate behavior. Clearly the problem doesn't lie simply in the pressures of the changing culture, but in the old-fashioned ideals of masculinity that, that can often only be achieved through predatory and sexist attitudes. So in Creepshow we see several characters are dealing with, a with the crisis of masculinity. In the framing story, Father's Day, something to tide you over the crate and they're creeping up on you. We see these old, rotting, patriarchs are desperately grasping at this status quo, right? Like they're trying to possess and control what they see as their property, the environment, or even their own families. Father's I got my cake. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> was like this escape from the abuse but in reality it actually brought out his own toxic masculinity mm -hmm. while his father is abusive and aggressive towards Billy Billy ends up reciprocating that aggression onto 
uh, a voodoo doll that he actually ordered from the comic at the end of the movie to and like eventually inflict pain and maybe death like I think that was I think maybe that was pretty obvious but mm-hmm. yeah um maybe even death like on his own father in an act of revenge so I don't know it kind of like leaves uh this leave uh, like the feeling of hopelessness mm-hmm. at the end of the movie like the cycle's just gonna begin again and like continue mm-hmm. yeah the father's reaction to the horror comic reminded me of a book that I'm reading also just like in the middle of like three different books <laughs> Uh, Yeah, so reading Satanic Panic, Pop Cultural Paranoia in the 1980s, which is a collection of essays detailing the moral panic surrounding films, comics, and games like Dungeons & Dragons, because they were apparently associated with Satanism and the occult. So instead of actually talking with their kids, parents at this time became obsessed with controlling what their kids read, watched, or listened to out of fear. Um, Yeah, so I have a quote from the Satanic Panic book from an essay by Theologianist. While the publication of Michelle Remembers in 1980 spawned renewed international dialogue about horrific child abuse behind closed doors, the double whammy of the highly publicized disappearance of Adam Walsh in 1981 and the initial allegations of the famed McMartin preschool trial in 1983 effectively put an end to the carefree days of Gen X kids. No more walking home from school alone, no more playing outside until the streetlights came on. The result of this reinvigorated watchdogging was a generation of children who increasingly felt the need to operate in secret. 1970s kids who had been taught to problem-solve independently and to speak openly to their parents through a decade of countercultural children pro- programming suddenly faced renewed strictness and anxiety at home. While intergenerational dis- disconnection was certainly nothing new, a chasm opened up between 1980s parents and their kids, and it, wasn't, and it wasn't helped by efforts to target youth culture as inherently vulnerable to a globally organized satanic threat. Uh, This combination of aimlessness and morbidity that characterized many teens of the era was alarming to parents because they felt it opened up their kids to dark compulsions and and temptations. But But for parents unable to think of solutions or to accept accountability, a scapegoat as tangible as the devil proved too tempting in itself. And yeah, I just think it's interesting that, like, the father who's, like, slapping his, like, would rather, like, slap his kid than, like, let him read this horror comic. It's, like, pretty dark. Just let kids read what they want, and maybe they won't kill you with a voodoo doll. <laughs> yeah. just like, I know. Just like, you know, yeah, he's like slapping his kid, and it's just like, you're literally being violent. Yeah. And letting your kid read something, like, violent. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not, it's, yeah. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. Friends, get out of here. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, this history of cens- censorship also relates to EC Comics. So, um, I quote from the University of Missouri Library website. Horror crime and suspense comics became quite popular in the late 1940s and early 1950s. EC Comics, edited by Al Fildstein and Harvey Kurtzman, was one of the main purveyors of this type of literature. The company published several highly popular titles, including Tales Tales from the Crypt, Frontline Combat, Panic, and Shock suspense stories. Movements to center these types of comics began popping up around the country after World War II, sparked by the publication of Seduction of the Innocent by Psychiatrists psychiatrist Frederick Wortham, Congress held an official inquiry in comics and juvenile delinquency in 1954, and many cities throughout the country passed or considered municipal bans on comic books in general. Fearing government regulation, the comics industry turned to self-censorship, forming the Comics Code Authority in late 1954. The code set a number of content and artistic standards, including the stipulation that good must always triumph over evil, a general ban on the words horror and terror in comic book titles, and strict guidelines for the handling of crime, race, sexuality, and political issues. 
Although the CAA had no legal power, most, most distributors refused to carry comics without the CAA seal of approval. Some publishers adapted to the new regulations while others went out of business. EC Comics canceled all of its titles, all of its titles except for Mad Magazine and was later absorbed by DC Comics. And that we see this like this pattern of censorship and sort of like, oh, we have to think of the children, but then and even like there's an example I think there was a bill a few years ago that tried to you had to be 18 to buy like a violent video game and Stephen King's argument for that is like well we should probably just get rid of guns yeah. first <laughs> in, instead of like censoring all these various works which is like such a like a theme that we see happen over and over again just like so frustrating god I didn't know I had it in me <laughs> I'm your daughter right you bootlegger killer murder ungrateful best shouldn't have killed Peter, you know. He was a man, right? A real man. See? Everything I wanted, he wanted for me. Oh, you stupid bastard. You screwed it all up. You screwed up my mother. You screwed me up. You got me so mad. Drove me crazy. I want my cake, Medellia! You bitch! You called me a bitch! Sylvia fixed it all. Ashtray back in place, chair overturned. Took a fall, Daddy, a bad fall. Nobody could catch us, nobody. You taught me, you taught Sylvia, you taught us all.
difference, which um, I don't think that was an accident. Mm. And then with Wilma in the crate, who was also sometimes referred to as Billy, which honestly I kind of found confusing, mm. um, was abusive and vulgar and pushed her husband around. And I don't know, like, is it just making them, the women look bad because they're masculine, because they're showing like that these types of characters are usually displayed by men. So in making the women characters evil, the only way to show that is to make them masculine. Like, I don't know, does that make sense? What do, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. I don't know if it's necessarily, like, feminine versus masculine, but, like, the villainous women are, are definitely, like, portrayed as going, like, against heteropatriarchal traditions. Like, Bedelia is an unmarried spinster, and Billy is vulgar, loud, and emasculating. But, like, they're they're just, like, these great, fun, memorable characters. But I... I'm not sure if that was, like, the filmmaker's intention. Because mm-hmm. we're not supposed to like Billy, but she seems fun. She parties. Yeah, like, I mean, everyone was looking at her at the party. They were, like, like mm-hmm. you know, giving her the stink eye. But I was, like, I don't know. She's being, like, pretty funny to me. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. Um, I have a quote from Horror Homeroom. So, much of Creepshow's highlights, uh, much of Creepshow highlights patriarchy and its challenges, just when you think there's something that's subversive, it's reined back to rain back in by all, the all too often conservative nature of horror. Uh, in each story, they have a male stereotype: the father, farmer, rich man, academic, and capitalist businessman. The stories are different; the outcomes are the same. Affluent white males rule. At times, there are disturbances. There are remedied and normality restored. This is the horror formulas proposed by. Such horror scholars as Noel Carroll, uh, Robin Wood, and Stephen King. They agree that there is normality. A monster of some, of some sort disrupts it. The monster is defeated, and then the normality is restored. With this in mind, Creepshow highlights patriarchal rule as normality. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do agree that like there are definitely like more male main characters in this film there's more male characters generally but I don't necessarily agree that normality is restored in every segment because the affluent white males aren't the heroes and like even if the stories even in the stories where the villains win like Father's Day something to tide you over the crate I don't think the audience is on their side like the bleak irony of some of these stories is what is that the bad guys get away with it yeah that's a really good point um I also think that not necessarily it be normality that's restored. Maybe even like nature being restored, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So like maybe not for all of the stories, but for example, in like they're creeping up on you. I think the bad guy is obviously Dorish, yes. who loses his mind trying to kill these cockroaches in his penthouse and eventually gets totally taken over by them in the end. And then Jordy and the most Jeff of Jordy Barrel turning into this fuzzy plant monster for messing with the meteor and then it just kind of takes over the whole town. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It's just kind of like nature is just like taking back the reins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it too. Yeah. So, um, horror homeroom continues. Um, in the lonesome death of Jordy Girl, the lead role, played by King, brings disaster upon himself and the world when he doesn't need the advice of his father. Yet, again, the white male defies death and returns to restore order. His father usurps natural law by appearing in the mirror to offer his fatherly advice and to save the world. Again, father knows best. The outcome is the same. When you don't listen to your father, you at least doom upon the world. 
Um, I, yeah, I think Dirty Veril is an interesting character to think about in terms of traditional masculinity and status. So his flaw really is that he wants to sell the meteor so that he can pay off his bank loan. And like it seems like he's trying to find a way out of poverty and maybe break away from his like controlling, bullying father, but unknowingly helps spread this alien plan for us. <laughs> Which I also like, it's interesting to see how isolation is portrayed in these films, like mostly in The Lonesome Death of Jordy Barrel and then They're Creeping Up on You. Like I feel like in quarantine, you could either be either one of those stories where it's just like you you slowly turn into a little houseplant or you become a germaphobe. Oh my god, is this like the perfect movie to watch in quarantine or like the worst? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe the worst because the Jordy Barrel, it's like such a nihilistic, sad ending. Yes. Yeah, yeah it really he's, is. Yeah, he's a very tragic character, I think. Yeah. Um, I feel like we're supposed to, like, kind of laugh at his, like, mm-hmm. you know, bad luck, but it's just, like, I don't know. I felt really bad for him the whole time. Totally, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the way that class, wealth, and status are portrayed in the film led me to the idea of neoliberalism. So this is a bunch of, like, economic jargon that I'm not familiar with, so uh, bear with me. <laughs> Um, neoliberalism is contemporarily refer, used to refer to market-oriented reform policies such as eliminating price controls, deregulating capital markets, lowering trade barriers, and reducing, especially through privatization and austerity, state influence in the economy. So basically, neoliberalism emphasizes the individual, the individual over the collective and does kind of like bootstraps austerity myth that we're still dealing with today, especially in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. So I have a quote here from TheGuardian.com. Neoliberalism sees competition as the defining characteristic of human relations. It redefines citizens as consumers whose democratic choices are best exercised by buying and selling, a process that rewards merit and punishes inefficiency. It maintains that the market delivers benefits that can never be achieved by planning. We internalize and reproduce its creeds. The rich persuade themselves that they acquired their wealth through merit, ignoring the advantages such as education, inheritance, class, and race that they that may have helped to secure it. The poor begin to blame themselves for their failures, even when they can do little to change their circumstances. Never mind structural unemployment. If you don't have a job, it's because you are you are unenterprising. Never mind the impossible cost of housing. If your credit card is maxed out, you're feckless and improvident. Never mind that your children no longer have a school playing field. They get fat. It's your fault. In a world governed by competition, those who fall behind become defined and self-defined as losers. Neoliberalism has brought up the worst in us. Yeah. And I think this is especially true in um, their creeping up on you. Like, just this very, like, isolated, rich man trying to control his entire environment and only worried about himself. Not yeah. his company or his employees or anything like that. What the fuck? Another son of a bitch in blackout. If it is my power company, this would never happen. Damn 
People are going to pay. Oh, yes. And you will pay, too. Every one of you. Every damn one of you. I've been beating bugs all my life. And I'll beat you, too. Bastards. Talk to me. Pratt. You old fool. I hope you die. I hope you die. I hope you die. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that in something to tide you over and crave, they offer women as challenges to the patriarchal order. Um, they both show the disruptive nature of women, but they also paint women as like negative stereotypes, so namely as whores and trues. Mm-hmm. So it's really tied you over. Richard Vickers is used to getting his way, and when he can't, he buys his, a solution. So when his wife cheats on him, um, she needed to be dealt with. So mm-hmm. he decides to bury her, not in court, but like literally in the shore of his private beach. When she dies and returns from her watery tomb, um, his wife Becky is rendered in a split shot with a lionfish in the nearby tank. So the flora, the flora like hanging around her and her dead lover resembled this poisonous fish as a reminder of the venomous remnants of Richard's life. Mm-hmm. So while the corpses are the best of Richard, it's seemingly because of the putrid actions of mm-hmm. one slutty woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think these shorts, these short films rely on stock characters and stereotypes because of the anthology format, because we don't have spend a lot of time with each characters. Like, it's not just the female characters that are stereotypes. It's kind of like everybody yeah. in a way. But because there's there aren't a lot of female main characters anyway, so we don't really get to spend that much time with them anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's too bad. I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have liked to see more of, like, 
Bedelia or even like Wilma slash Billy. I'm not sure. Like, Billy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or even um, even Becky. Like it is. It is weird that. I guess because the Richard character sees her as property, not even like property that needs to be dealt with and punished and not even anyone like worth having a conversation with. So he, he gets to spend, we see him spending more time with the Ted Danson character. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed about that because Mm -hmm. then when I saw her on the video, I was like, Oh, why don't we get to see her story? Like, and like, how did, where did that come from? Mm -hmm. And yeah, but then she like wants him at the end. So. Yeah, I do like that. I do like the revenge at the end of that segment. Yeah. Um, in that, in something to tide you over as well as they're creeping up on you, it's inter- interesting to see how sort of like new tech is being used. Like yeah. Richard's set up with like a giant TV and like a camera like set up on the beach. It's like very, very funny. And it's oh, yeah. kind of like this, like a very proto saw situation where you're like watching someone um, yeah ah, or whatever totally. yeah like break, almost like retro futuristic yeah um, yeah totally and like how he has yeah. like security cameras everywhere and like this idea of safety and tech while also like attached to his wealth and we also yeah. see that in they're creeping up on you how he has this like his like weird like tech prison that he has like to control like the air the temperature and and everything around him also, that one's a really interesting segment because it kind of feels like the world is ending outside of his apartment, right? Yeah, totally. Like, yeah. I, it seems like it's a totally different, um, like, decade or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, it just seems, like, very futuristic. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, is that, like, what happened after, like, the lo- the lonely death of Jordy Merrill? Oh, yeah. Like, you know, yeah, like, kind of, like, that. post-apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I feel like at the very end of the Jordy... Jordy story um there's like that like the scene of the whole town and it's like covered in like this fuzz and then there's like a forecast over it that's just like oh we're gonna see a lot of rain mm-hmm. or something and it's, yeah. it's gonna be really green and lush or something yeah Ooh, yeah that also that. connects like, to your to what you mentioned about sort of like nature gaining control or nature like coming back yeah yeah with the green fuzz kind of taking over the world and and these bugs creeping into this like very sterile austere apartment yeah and they were real cockroaches like they were yes. all real. yeah i read that you had to get like twenty thousand cockroaches and then they had like a terrible cockroach problem like on set after and they were like it was just they were like getting into everything and i'm yeah. like oh my god like we're sniper that's so putrid but they also had to like account for all of them but there's so many <laughs> shots of them like getting stepped on and stuff i wonder if they had like issues i know i felt kind of sad like when they were crushing them and i'm like i really hope that they're not actually crushing them but like at the same time they're cockroaches so i don't know I feel yeah <laughs> yeah oh my god yeah i do yeah i love it when they like burst out of his out yes. of his chest i think that's so great such a great shot and like that would take that would be so much work and like what if something bad happened? like what if there was a mistake i don't know it's just like really cool to see these kind of like risky silly fun stories yeah in this film yeah i know the special effects were so so good and then mm-hmm. i didn't know that the special effects guy what was his name again tom, uh, tom savini yeah he was the one of the garbage guys like, oh yeah yeah he's at the end I, yeah. so the more you know yeah oh yeah so that is our show for this week thank you so much for listening and thank you talia for for coming on the show again yeah thank you talia. so much for having me yeah i love I love to watch all the Stephen King movies and read all the Stephen King books. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I'm excited to read different seasons. Yes. And I will also lend you my copies of uh, Full Past Midnight and Everything's Natural. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading those ones too. Um, so yeah, so where can people find your work and, and find you on all your things? Um, yeah, so right now I just have um, most of my work on Instagram. I'm still working on my website, so um, that's, that's what every like, graphic designer says, but I really am. <laughs> um, so I'm working on my website still. So uh, Saint underscore underscore Metallica, <laughs> like, kind of like a play on the Metallica song or album, Saint Anger, and Metallica. And then my name, so anyways, <laughs> you can check it out on there. That is not confusing enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, um, that's where it is. And I will be hopefully drawing more because what else do I have to do? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> We're all just slowly <laughs> turning into little plant fuzz monsters. Oh, God. Uh, hopefully not. Yeah. Watch this movie during quarantine um, and see how you feel. Yeah. And let Olivia know. Yeah. Please let me know. Um, you can reach me at uh, bikinidrivein at gmail.com with any questions, suggestions, or any notes about creep show um you can follow me on instagram twitter facebook page it's all bikini drive-in and yeah you can listen to bikini drive-in every sunday at 4 p.m on ckw 95.9 fm all right thanks bye by volunteer community involvement. This is CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg.